Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. I'm Joe McCall, and this is part two of my interview with Michael Jake. We just interviewed him last week. So much I wanted to ask him and go over, and uh, we, I said, hey, can we please do it in two parts? And he agreed, graciously agreed. Those of you that don't know Michael, he's been around in the business for a long, long time. I met him years ago. I've spoken at his... Do you still lead that RIA, by the way, the real estate club? We're on meetup pretty much at this point, and we're pretty much all virtual. But yeah, we still we still run it. We're kind of waiting until we can get back and meet in person, but still running things there. You've invited me to speak there twice, which is crazy. And I love any excuse to go out to Colorado Springs I can get. But all right. So part one, we talked a lot about how Michael got started in the business, what he's doing today. Uh, he's got an impressive story of, of where he's kind of come from and where he's at today. How many doors do you own today right now and manage, Michael? Our company, we're down to, I think, 48 with a high water mark internal of about 102. And then again, I think on the last show I mentioned, I had a partnership with 30 some that we dissolved. And then I have about 26 or so in in a Roth IRA type environment that I'm involved in. So a total of how many? I don't know, 80-ish, whatever that adds up to. Okay. And over the last year or so, have you been selling some of your inventory? Or yeah. Yeah, have been. Can you yeah, explain just, why? Uh, I mean, at some point, I kind of had to relearn the basic plan I kind of signed up for. I think I mentioned on the last one, John Schaub had a pretty huge impact on me. And, and when I originally read his book, you know, it was buy a house a year and wait for them to double. And when they double, if you know, you can sell a house a year and have you know, this massive chunk of, of equity to live on. And all you got to do is buy one house a year. And, you know, that was, that, I'm like, wow, that's like an incredibly simple plan that that works. And and then, you know, you kind of get mixed up in this world and you realize, oh, it's probably easier to buy a house a month than it is to buy a house a year. Because, you know, when you kind of set up all the business systems and the marketing systems, it's hard to, I mean, it's harder in my opinion to buy just one than it is to buy a crap ton of them. But at some point, once you have a crap ton of them, you get to the point where less is more. And, you know, I kind of slowly realized that, man, you know, I, I don't need to be this busy. I don't need to be this hectic in my life. And, and again, I'm, I'm business partners with my wife. So the more hectic I am, the more hectic she is in magnitudes. So, you know, the market here got fairly, I mean, like most places, got really competitive and margins are bidding down. And, 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 and at some point, it's just like, I'm good. I, I don't need to play. I've heard this from so many people especially recently, prices are going up and people are like, do I really need a hundred doors? Right? Like I can make uh, no, the same cash flow. <laughs> yeah. You, you can make the same cash flow selling half of them and paying down your debt on the other half. Absolutely. With a lot, with half the headaches and hassles. Absolutely. I mean, we don't have the hassles of, of flipping or rehabbing. 
I mean, you still have, I guess you want to call it the hassles of owning rental properties. I mean, there is maintenance involved with that. But, you know, because we were rehabbers and, and flippers, you know, we have a good team of people to do that. And, you know, we still, we have less of them now, but we have a lot of people that we we know, like, and trust and, and we keep them busy and we just have them doing different work now, basic maintenance stuff and keeping the rental portfolio in, in good condition. That's kind of it. And it's it's, a, it's enough moving parts. And, and as you said, by... By selling a bunch of them and paying off debt, we actually by having less houses, we actually have more cash flow and we have less management, meaning there's less tenants to manage, there's less houses to manage and, and things like that. So what's your point, goal, Michael? If you don't mind me asking, you don't have to get too personal, but like is your goal long-term wealth or cash flow to pay the bills today? A long-term, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I mean it's just sport at this point. I mean, we we have plenty to live the rest of our lives. I don't need to work another day if I don't want to. I kind of try to help other folks locally learn the business. And I mean, I am working, I'm working deals right now. I mean, they just kind of fall in my lap doing what I, you know, doing what I have done, doing what I do with the the real estate group. And, but I'm not running, you know, huge marketing campaigns anymore. I'm not doing, you know, I don't have an acquisitions team anymore. I, I, you know, just me and Lori, and we have 1.5 employees, predominantly the deal with the management side of things. And then I participate in deals with my Roth, predominantly with people that I know, like, and trust locally that, you know, I've hopefully uh, corrupted their their thinking <laughs> to, you know, to buy and hold. And, and that's predominantly where, where I do my IRA investing is I help people structural deals. I provide the cash needed and, and I, I'm looking for growth in my IRA as I was looking for growth outside of my IRA when I was building mm-hmm. my portfolio originally. And, and now I'm you know, I'm looking 10 years out with my Roth and how much I can grow that to. And the reality is I don't need it. I don't need it now. So why would I'm going to need it there? So at, at some point, I'm just growing numbers to grow numbers to see see where I can take it. I want to ask you some more questions about the Roth IRA. How do people invest in IRAs and what's the point of that? So I, I made some list of questions here and I kind of wanted to go through them with you. Um, you know, looking back, we talked on the previous podcast about some of the mistakes that you've made and a lot of us made them. I made a lot of them. You know, looking forward ahead, I know you can't predict what the market's going to do, but do you think about it still? Do you think about like, all right, how can I protect myself to avoid the same mistakes I made before? If the worst case happens in, you know, a couple through three years. If if I could wind the clock back to where I started, I would have I would have learned and studied property management a whole lot better early on. And knowing that would have helped me make a lot less mistakes and probably buy a lot less of the wrong kind of property and and really probably shortcut, you know, a lot of the mistakes. I'm, and sometimes, you, you know, you buy what on the surface looks like a great house in a great area. And there's just other things like we had one house that literally had a, an underground stream underneath it. We had, you know, we've had crazy neighbors that stalked our tenants and properties. And it was no problem with the house, no problem with the neighborhood. We just had a, you know, a, a wingnut neighbor that, that would chase away tenants. So and in that particular house, we still do have that one. And, and eventually the situation righted itself when that person moved. But but it's, you know, you do the best you can. And you, having better front-end knowledge of management, you know, I probably would have worked a whole lot better. I say that. I mean, but, you know, when, when I was really growing the portfolio, we had subprime financing. A lot of people that were qualified were buying. And, and I would say there were a lot less A-caliber tenants then than there are now. So, uh, so I, I don't know. 
you know, I got where I got and, and I made the mistakes I made. And ultimately, the, the mistakes I made helped shape my philosophies going forward. So yeah. what's your prediction of the market in the next couple of years? I, I'm in a hot market and I'm in a state where people are relocating too. So my opinions on this topic may vary wildly from somebody who who maybe is in, in a different type of a city. So I, I get confronted with this a lot with looking at eviction moratoriums and, you know, uh, foreclosure moratoriums. I just see, I've seen our market explode as rates have lowered. And I mean, they're what low twos right now, which makes it very affordable for people to buy. There's a shortage of inventory. I honestly don't see any problems in my local market for several years. If every one of the you know, percentage of properties is that is in, well, okay, let me rewind a little bit. I was just at Collective Genius and we, we have the John Burns comes there pretty regularly and, and kind of gives his predictions on the market. And and he did a breakdown of the number of loans in some sort of forbearance. And the reality was the stats he's showing is over 50% of them are in forbearance by on purpose, not by accident. So his take is over 50% of these loans that are in forbearance literally have the money sitting in the bank as an emergency fund and don't need it. They have the capacity to make the payment. They're just not. I've gotten feedback from that from mortgage brokers that I that I know like to trust where they've been doing refis for people on loans and forbearance. And they're like, well, uh, crap, you know, they're, they get it all the way down and they're like, wait, your loan's in forbearance. We can't do a refi. Oh, I'll just write a check and catch it up. And, and there's a lot of that going on where they're wow. just strategically in forbearance, not from a distress standpoint. So the other half, is that a much higher than normal number? Say that again. So half of them, half of the loans that are in forbearance, the homeowners have the money set aside. The other half, is that a scary number? Is that much higher than normal? You know, I wish I was looking at the slide, but I mean, basically you had this entire pie that got cut down to about 25% or maybe even less of the people that really are in, in distress and probably can't you know, maybe don't necessarily have enough equity to get out. But in, in my local market, since COVID started, you know, I'm I'm under contract right now on a, on on a rental that we had. And early this year, I was thinking we were going to sell that for like 250, 260. And then it looked like, eh, maybe we're probably going to do like 270. And we, we gave it a little bit of love and we're under contract at 320. I'm waiting to clear to close. And this is the same house in the same neighborhood in less than one calendar year. So our market has gone up at a faster pace than what people's mortgage payments would be accumulating if they weren't paying them. So if they really, if government subsidies doesn't allow them to put the payments on the back end of the loan, which is really what I see is going to happen. They're not just going to say, okay, write us a $30,000 check and and they're not going to be able to do that. They know they're not going to do that. So they're yeah. going to they're going to probably most likely do workouts and and dump those on the back end of the loan and and we're going to we're going to see smooth sailing really until we see more of a a real estate debt crisis which you know we had in we had in 08 from the subprime meltdown and we didn't have prior to that until the SNL crisis in the late 80s early 90s and and if you stretch that window and you know there's a what is the other book i just uh, the secret life of real estate and banking and i mean they they track real estate cycles on on an 18 year window not a recession cycle on a on a 7 year window so anyway dude i don't know but i think locally we're good i think a lot of markets are good i think if you're in a in a high bubble 
if you're, I thought New York was going to fall on its face. And, and it, I, I've just been reading things where New York is starting to come back. So, dude, I, I haven't got a clue. I, I mean, I think what we do in, in residential real estate is so microeconomic that, you know, you could have one part of your city is in huge distress and others are booming. So I think you got to pay attention to what's going on in your market. You know, I use some local market trackers. I use some national market trackers. Uh, you, you know, I look at uh, some basic stuff. You know, I use a little housing tool. I pay attention to John Burns and, and I try to make up my assessment based on what, what the heck's going on in my market. But but yeah. would I buy another rental today? Hell yeah. Even as hot as I think the market is right now, if I could get, you know, get good terms on it. Yeah, I would probably buy as many as I could right now. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy. You, you hear these dire project predictions and projections in the in some parts of the media but you talk to the boots on the ground people that are active in the business it's like i don't we don't see it yet right so it's kind of a is the can just being kicked down the road who knows right but if if we're buying would you agree with this you know if we're if we're staying true to our fundamentals the fundamentals mm -hmm. of cash flow for one then we should be fine, right? And the other thing I love about real estate, maybe you can talk about this too, compared to the stock market. The stock market, cryptocurrencies, they can turn on a dime, right? Like just overnight, they're down. Real estate is much slower. It gives you a lot more time to fix and adjust and correct. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. But I also, you have a physical asset that, you know, when you look at all the benefits of the property, you know, equity is, is only one part of it. Income is only one part of it. Let me go back to this house I just mentioned I have under contract. I bought that house in 2007. I bought it subject to. So it had little to no equity when I bought it. When I sell that house, we're going to walk with over 200 grand. So did I make, you know, in, in 2008, somebody could say, Mike, you're an idiot. You just bought a house in 2007. It's never going to come back. I mean, the reality was the income was there. The equity vaporized for a while, you, you know, and I, I don't know Bitcoin. I, I mean, I look at the charts and like, wow, neat. I look at Tesla. I look at Apple. I mean, but I, I also worked for a company, you know, before I got into real estate where all my stock options were basically worthless at the time of execution. So like I can manipulate real estate. If the market tanks, I can just hold it longer and eventually it's going to come back to the curve, the inflation curve. And it's going to, I mean, if I take over a loan, if I create a loan, if I qualify for a loan, there's one thing that we can hold true. It's going to pay down. And you can put that the numbers into a financial calculator and realize whether I ill-timed the market, I still have the benefits of amortization. I still have the long-term benefits of inflation. And if you're not trying to be a day trader, and, and I don't think anybody should try to be a day trader in real estate. I don't think anybody should try to be a day trader in stocks. I mean, you should look for value, you know, buy the best house or the best stock you can and manage it well and hold on for the long term. So if you, you know, had $100,000 and you wanted to do something with it, mm -hmm. would you go buy a property free and clear with cash? Or would you go buy two or three properties with down payment? Let me ask you this, and I'm going to lead to my answer, but how much money have has the Fed printed in, in less than a year? Probably more than it has in a long, long time, a lot. So what happens when they print money? Well, I don't understand all this, but I think inflation. I mean, happens. it devalues our currency and, and right, it does create inflation. And they're like, oh, we're trying to get things 2%. 2% once you take food, gas, and housing out of the equation. If you add those back in, it's probably nearly double that. So 
I mean, just take your market, take any market and study back far enough. Like look at census data. That's easy to get. You don't have a subscription and you can Google that. You can find a, a basic market and you look, okay, 1940, here is the housing price index and here it is now. And if you draw a line, it's probably in just about any market about 3.7, 3.8% inflation. You can call it appreciation. You can call that speculative. But I, I mean, I would say history, history is on our side in that case. So you can kind of count on inflation in most houses, in most markets. Now, I I mean, St. Louis, I, I know you guys have houses that you can probably still buy for under 100. I, I mean, and that's retail in those neighborhoods. Now, I'm not referring to those houses, unfortunately. Those, like, if you look at the national median house, it's over three hundred thousand right now. I would want houses that are in the middle of the market that do go up in value. I don't want high. I don't want one percent a month houses or two percent a month houses. I want high growth houses over the long haul. I want the best house in the best neighborhood with the best schools that a tenant can afford. Which means the rent that the property will generate will support all the costs of ownership. And I don't want the, the cheapest one with the highest income factor. I want the one with the biggest growth factor. Yeah. Interesting. So, okay, let's just use St. Louis. Let's say the median home price in the entire area of St. Louis is $200,000, median home price. Mm-hmm. You can buy homes right now at retail for eighty ninety. That have that high rental yield in it, right? Because, mm-hmm. uh, but you're also that's a lower quality area. You're going to get a lower quality tenant, more maintenance, more management. So if the if let's say the median home price in the entire St. Louis metro area is two hundred thousand dollars, you want to be at that two hundred thousand dollar price range. I'd want to be probably one sixty to 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 two twenty is kind of where I want. I mean, right okay. where the median is, that's that's kind of where I want to be. Like, you, you know, you can say the numbers don't make as much sense as the ones on the low end. But I mean, the people that make comments like that are only like taking the consideration of income. That's the Mm -hmm. only factor they look at. They don't look at depreciation. They don't look at amortization. They don't look at growth. And if you stack all those benefits, the median price point house will just eat its lunch over time. In the short term, the income looks stronger. But I mean, you get the higher dollar portfolio, you get the depreciation that shields your income. So you can actually without working any harder, make more income because of tax advantages. Um, You know, like, let's just basic math and and like nobody understands what a lease option is or creative finance and they don't know you can take over payments and you're tethered with a 10 Freddie Fannie loan limit. Like if that's your limit, I'd want to get the most I would want to borrow the absolute most money I possibly could from Freddie and Fannie on those ten loans, which is what what is the the what is the limit right now? Just under five hundred thousand, maybe it's maybe it just crested five hundred thousand. So sure. I could effectively borrow upwards of five million dollars of debt from the government on thirty year fixed rates and in, in the threes right now. Like I would much rather do that, assuming the tenants can afford. The properties that I'm borrowing the money on, because if I have the one percent houses, I'm probably going to have, you know, like on ten of them. What am I going to have? Eight hundred thousand? Like, no thanks. If you're going to use debt, use debt. More is better. Assuming the assets will afford themselves. Okay, interesting. Now, talk about subject twos because you you just mentioned there's a most banks will only allow you to have about ten loans on properties. Now you can convert yep. them to commercial <laughs> loans, and that that's, that's a whole other subject, but. Yeah. 
you probably reached a point where you're like, I can't get traditional bank financing anymore. Mm-hmm. So you started buying homes creatively. Talk about what a subject two is for somebody who doesn't know. And wh- what do you like about subject twos? What I like about subject two, subject two is effectively, you know, subject two is just lingo. It's we're buying a property subject to an existing loan or pretty much subject to any and all existing liens and encumbrances on the property. So what we're doing is we're, we're buying it, meaning title transfers from seller to buyer and the loan isn't getting paid off. And usually that's a situation where they're lower equity. Usually it's a situation where they're an, an owner occupant or they're an accidental landlord that didn't want to, you know, tried renting it out They because they had to move away and, and things aren't going so well. But, but ultimately it's an owner occupied loan. They're usually lower interest rate than investor loans. You know, right now, I think this morning I saw you can get a, an owner oc loan 2.2%. Now I am doing a couple of refis on some subject to properties right now, and they're at 3.6%. Right, so so are you refinancing them into your name or you refinance, is the owner refinancing them in their name? I'm refinancing these into my name okay. and my wife's name. Yeah, we've, we've had them over 10 years. There's massive equity and like some of these loans are 5.5 and 6.5%. And, you know, they made sense when we bought them. The rent was still higher than the debt service, but now like money is so bleeping cheap and, and I can sort of refi this many and pay off debt on this many. So we're, we're just, again, I do believe we're going to have an inflationary market for a long time coming. And if you look at that, I'd rather have as much cheap debt right now as I can, because I'm going to be paying it all back in, in inflate or deflated dollars over time. So, okay. uh, so you buying a house subject to is when you take over the mortgage, mm-hmm. the, the loan stays in the seller's name, but now you take title to the property. Correct. Now, some people look at that and think, man, that's kind of risky, isn't it? Like you don't have much equity. You're not getting much cash flow. It's risky if you're a bad manager. It, it's, point. It, it's incredibly risky if you're a bad manager. It's incredibly risky if you don't have cash reserves to solve a problem that you have. It's incredibly risky if you don't really know what you're doing and you go about trying to do that business half-cocked. You know, there's a lot of people that are better at marketing and getting leads than they are at like all the the, the granular details of making sure that you do it right and you protect yourself and you protect the seller and you better own it like it's your own loan because people have, I mean, people have gotten into trouble in some cases gone to jail because they have a mismanaged the properties handled, you know, the situation poorly and, and let houses go to foreclosure, let them go back to the bank and, and didn't try to do any kind of workouts or, or give them back to the former owners or, or, you know, I'm just, you're going to hear a lot of people say that's illegal. Don't do it. I mean, if you do it right, it's a fantastic business and you're able to help people that no other investor or not many other people are even trying to do in your neighborhood. I mean, I I happen to be in a military town and we have five different military installations and they're getting 100% finance VA loans on nice properties. And then the government says, you got to go, you know, and they may not have enough equity to sell the traditional way. And, you know, what am I going to offer them? 70 cents on the dollar for their beautiful house in a nice neighborhood with zero repairs. I mean, if that's the only tool I got in my toolbox, I can't help that person. And I can help them if I know how to, A, manage the property effectively and know how to buy it subject to. So, so let's talk about your criteria today then on a subject to deal. Mm-hmm. Let's say it's worth 300000 and mm-hmm. they owe 295 on it. Maybe maybe you give us the, the typical numbers. On an example. Well, I, I mean, I've done that. 
<laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not lying, but I, I mean, I like a little bit of little bit of spread in there. But you know, the reality is, the loan on that three hundred two ninety five loan is, is paying down five six thousand a year. That three hundred thousand, you know, that's going to go up nine uh, nine thousand to twenty right now, thirty thousand, forty thousand a year. But I, I mean, you know, if I just use inflation numbers, it's going up. And ultimately, you know, let's say I theoretically could wholesale that for 15 grand. Okay. Then I pay, if I'm a wholesaler, I'm probably paying high taxes on that and whatever's left, I got to pay for the cost of my marketing. I I mean, ultimately you're not, you're not making all that much. You're really not. Whereas you buy it subject to, and you don't have spendable money, but you've got a growth factor and you have an, an amortization factor and a depreciation factor. And you're doing, I mean, you're getting at least 20, if not $30,000 per year of benefit from that property that has zero equity. 20 to 30,000. I hope you guys are understanding this. Like rewind this if you need to, if you don't, if you don't catch what Michael's saying here, mm-hmm. it may not have much equity, but you're paying down the principal, mm-hmm. right? It's appreciating. And you get some tax write-offs, right? Mm-hmm. And you're looking at, if you were to wholesale it, you might make your gross wholesale profit might be 15 grand, but your net, net, net after the end of the day might be only 5,000. Mm-hmm. You're, you're making more than that by just holding on to it through the principal mm-hmm. pay down, through the appreciation and through the tax write-offs. And so over the long haul, it's, 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 a, really, it's a really great game. It's- it's a great game, assuming you have a business that's providing you income along the way. Okay, so let's talk about that, though, the income. Because you're absolutely right. Like, you can get in big trouble in this subject to game, any kind of buying property and owning property game, if you don't have the right property management in place and you're not treating it like a business. Yes, and, and often this business gets sold as a beginner strategy with, with no or, or low money down. And the worst is when people teach you how to borrow money against them and pull out cash. And that is a really bad idea. We know somebody from your neck of the woods who used to teach that. Yes. There, I mean, he, he's not the only one. A lot of people have taught that because it, it's, you got to make it sexy, man. You got to make a product. And I mean, it, the reality is it's not sexy. <laughs> it, it, it's like, I, I mean, I remember the first five years my wife and I were doing this, like, she's running this whole management company that effectively made no money. It just broke even. And, you know, we had to be, you know, wholesalers and and fix and flippers to have the money to, you know, to live on and to pay the bills and to to do the marketing, to build the rental portfolio. And now, okay, so you know, let's these, these homes that you buy, then you're not getting much cash flow, if anything on them, right? Not initially, not in the first five years. No, I mean, they cover their costs you're getting the benefits, you know, you get the, like, I mean, again, I had to, I I did the flipping over here so I could do the buy and hold over here. The buy and hold over here provided me tons of tax shelter for the flipping over here. So I could flip half as much over here because I could keep all of it (laughs) as opposed to paying huge amounts of tax. I could pay no tax legally, morally, ethically, and because of this. So did it pay us? Yeah. I mean, it, it paid us because we had this as well. If we just did this, I'd, I would have needed a job and my wife would have needed a job for this to percolate for the five years to do that. So, so talk about the depreciation side of things that you just talked mm-hmm. about. There. Sure. Are you taking accelerated depreciation on these homes? Or? No, no. I, I, I mean, it, there's goods and bads about it. But a buddy of mine calls it, don't let the tail wag the dog. And when you, when you have, when you take this accelerated depreciation up front, you kind of create yourself or 
crap. If that's a property I do want to sell, and and let me go back to the house I'm selling right now because that, that's what's on my on my radar. Like that's not a house I want to own forever. It's not in the right neighborhood to own forever. And I don't want to be stuck in like crap. I don't want to sell that because I'm going to have to repay or recapture all the depreciation. Which basically, if you've taken say sixty thousand dollars of depreciation on the property, you've got to repay that at a twenty five percent bracket. Okay, plus your capital gain. Yeah. So you're like, let me find another property. Well, what am, what am I going to find right now that I can 1031 into to avoid those taxes? I don't know. I might not make the best decision. Okay. And, and I just see a lot of people that because of the tax situation, make a bad decision on a replacement property. And I, I just don't want to be able to make, I, I mean, I'm literally going to take pay the tax on this because I, I'm not real optimistic on where tax uh, tax rates or you know capital gain rates are going to be in the future and you know i don't want to be stuck with an even bigger problem later so i'm just going to pay the tax and, and you're not explain that you're not taking any depreciation or you're just doing a normal appreciate depreciation schedule normal depreciation cycle so we don't componentize anything and uh, so it's 20 straight 27 and a half years on the improvements so so it, on a on a $30,000 house on a $300,000 house how much is that about a year sure let's do the math Okay, uh, let's take $300,000 house times 0.8. Why 0.8? I'm just taking 20% for the land. This is basic accounting. Like in some places you could justify the land's worth less, but let's 240,000 in improvements divided by 27.5. So there's $8,727 in benefit. Now, if I'm in the, let's say 35% tax bracket, so that's $3,054 of taxes this year I don't have to pay. Which is good. Right. <laughs> that's so, a good thing. Yeah. So times 100, that's pretty decent money, you know, that you don't have to pay tax on. So, okay. Even times 10. <laughs> it's pretty it's such a, I can't emphasize this enough. What you're saying is so good. If you have the right property management in place, I want to ask you about property management tips. And then I want to ask you about what would you, what kind of advice would you give to a beginner who's listening to this and is like, this sounds good. I'm a little overwhelmed, confused, but like, how would I get started to go down that path? So talk about property management tips. Like your wife's amazing because she's, she's managing all of these properties. I know you well enough. I don't know you that well, but I know you well enough. Like, you know, you're, you're a lot like me chasing shiny objects and you know, you, you love chasing the deal and you love sales and you're, you know, having somebody on your team like that is amazing. So talk about some property management tips. Somebody who's just getting started in the business and they're starting to, to buy properties, but they want to, they're listening to you and say, all right, I want to take property management seriously. What do you do? My best advice is go learn from David Tilney. David Tilney? David Tilney, T-I-L-N-E-Y.com. He teaches, I mean, a lot of my mentors said, you know, the easiest thing to manage is a detached single family house. And anything other than that is harder. I mean, a duplex, harder, a fourplex, harder, an apartment building, harder. Does it mean it's too hard? No, it's just, it's harder than a detached single family house. So, I mean, and that's, that is David's forte. So, you know, as a wholesaler, which I have been, we're looking for houses typically. So it, it just goes right along with what we're already shopping for. So, you know, I, I guess I'll, I guess some of the guys now are wholesaling duplexes and quads, and maybe that's bigger in different areas. But, you know, ultimately, I was always looking for houses. I was wholesaling houses. So I, I bought the wrong 
small multis when I started. So I realized I don't want any more of those. They were way different tenant demographics and the houses were always so much easier and so much less hassle. And so, so you anyway. prefer, you still prefer it to this day, single family homes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I'm not solely income focused. I want all the benefits and, and part of the benefit I want is the growth factor of it. Now, granted, locally, our, our fourplexes here have grown astronomically. So maybe, maybe I missed the mark on that one, like, cause we were buying those after the collapse in the, you know, in the ones and now they're in the fours to sixes and, and there's, yeah, I probably should have, but didn't, I just stuck with what I liked. But do, you, do you feel like single family homes are better long-term play? Yeah. I, I mean, if you don't want to get burnout at management, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know landlords that have been managing houses for 30, 40, 50 years, and they're still doing it. I don't know anybody that's managed fourplexes that long. You know, most of the time, the people that I started in fourplexes moved up to apartments. And, and then, you, you know, at some point you can exchange up and, and get into bigger apartments where you can get real commercial, smart, you know, property managers that know how to manage those assets. And like any huge player, they're not, they're not self-managing that stuff. I mean, they, they run it like a business and and part of the business is we got to have the right management on the, on the ground in, in that market. So, um, yeah. And you still got to wonder though, at the end of the day, after they look at their net net number and their return on time mm -hmm. and the return on their money, are they really doing that much better in the big, large multi-apartment, you know, units versus, what they could be doing on it with a single family so, home. With good so this, this is my philosophy. And I know some apartment guys that are going to dwarf my net worth. Like, so I, I mean, yeah, you can go bigger, faster with apartments. And I, I would never argue contrary, but you know, I, I have some good friends in property management. And one of the things he, he says is it's managing the tenants. Isn't the hard part. It's managing the owners. He's like, they're the biggest pain in the ass. And I can only imagine what people that are putting their money into apartment syndications are like. They're probably pains in the ass. Sorry. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Okay. Um, I, I mean, you know, like, I mean, maybe they're not. I don't know. I'm just, uh, that wasn't my aspiration. So, um, but you, there, there's management, like whether it's a tenant whether it's an owner, whether it's an equity partner, or you know somebody that's putting, it, it does require management. So you may not be managing the tenants on the ground with an apartment, but you are managing something. So. so somebody just getting started, would you encourage them to, I mean, I'm looking at David Tilney's website right now, David Tilney, T-I-L-N-E-Y.com. Mm -hmm. Looks like he has a, a property management course, right? Yes. He has this thing called hassle-free property management, master leasing, and three power pack days. Well, anyway, something like that. Somebody who is uh, getting started, starting to buy some houses, you recommend that they manage in-house, hire an assistant, manage your own properties or find a good I think property. when you're small, absolutely. If you get to know the business and you don't want to do it, you can always outsource it in some capacity. I don't know if we talked about it last time, but like at one point we had 102 houses and my wife said she didn't want any more. She didn't want to hire any more employees. She didn't want to scale that. So I found management by partnering with other people that had the skill set. So you know, a lot of the subject to deals in my market don't have enough gap in income to, to PITI, uh, you, you know, the debt service to afford a manager. So you can't scale that without scaling an, a monthly negative. So how do I get somebody to manage for free? Give them a piece of the pie. So I did that with my Roth IRA. I did that with another partnership. 
I mean, at this point, like my portfolio is mature that we could outsource management at some point. And our original goal was to have, you know, 30 free and clears. You know, I don't think we're going to get that small, but because my wife does like having employees and she does want to maintain enough bounds to justify, you, you know, at some point, the fee you could pay a fee manager that's good is less than what you pay for an in-house employee. So, you know, there's a balance there where we're probably going to maintain a certain portfolio size just to justify having an employee uh, so we can do it our way. And, and I mean, we we do, you know, last time Tilney did a seminar, my wife and both our employees were sitting on a Zoom call watching the seminar together. And, and every time they go, you know, we kind of move the management ball down the field and, and we get a little more streamlined and, and get a little better at what we're, what we're doing. So, yeah. Do you think somebody could manage a group of 20, 25 properties with a virtual assistant? I don't think you need a virtual assistant. Dude, I was as idiotic and had no business systems. And I had I had probably 23 to 25 houses before on my own while I was doing wholesaling. And, and I, granted, I wasn't doing full-on fix and flips then. I was doing either uh, wholesale or wholetail. And it wasn't until my wife joined me that, you know, that we actually did full-on rehabs. But okay. I, I mean, if you do, and I did not know who David Tilney was then. If I had his systems, I think I could have easily done probably 40 to 60 by myself and still been a, you know, a wholesaler on the side. That's amazing. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's been a ton of advancements with software, property management tools online. Everything's online now. Yeah. Um, are there some of, are there some online tools that you guys use and recommend? We, Buildium is our primary management software. Um, Buildium? Yeah, Buildium. And Appfolio is another similar one. Um, and there's others, but like Buildium seems to meet our needs as an owner manager. And then we use, you know, we had Podio built out um, thanks to you. I think we originally got Podio set up using your your yeah. Podio apps. And then because we had Podio, uh, Lori kind of built out her own Podio. I mean, both property maintenance side and, and also from the rehab side. Yeah. And then we have all our you know, contractors and subcontractors that, that aren't employees, they have access and they're all do whatever they do through all that stuff that goes through Podio, <laughs> which I have no clue on. I like, um, yeah. I used to have like over here, I used to have stacks of paper. That was my CRM. I had like high priority leads, medium priority leads, and, you know, slow follow-up leads. And then I've bought I over to, that's how I started my market like that. <laughs> How I started too. Yeah. And I wanted to just touch real quick on what we talked about before too. You've got in the past you used, oh yeah, you do more rent to owns, but you had found today, listen, it's better to get a good quality tenant because yep. you're going to have less maintenance requests and they're going to stay longer. Right. Yeah. So what, what are some of your criterias today for look, if you have a vacancy, what are some of your criteria looking for good tenants? That's a good question. I, I mean, we have basic criteria on our website. Let me see if I can pull it up. I can, t I, I can tell you, I don't, I don't, I, I mean, there's That's obviously okay. the, the income requirement. Um, you know, you got to look at just like if somebody was qualifying for a mortgage, they have to be signing up for a house. that's easily affordable. Do you know what I mean? If there's, uh, and, and I mean, don't ask me the percentages because I don't know, honestly, right off the top of my head. I can pull it off our website, but you know, if you're qualifying for a mortgage, they won't let you spend more than a certain percentage of your income on the payment. And it's the same thing for a tenant. Like if they're house poor, you know, at some point, a uh, you know, a flat tire on their car is a financial hardship. So, 
you know, they have to be able to easily afford the house. They have to have good job history, meaning they don't job hop. They are in the same field. You know, one of my mentors, Jack Miller, used to say, you know, poverty is created from job hopping and, and moving all the time. And it's just that occasional gap in one's income can create a lot of financial hardship over the years and to the point where people just can't get on the right side of the curve. So, you know, people that stick with their jobs that have strong ties to the community, you know, typically husband, wife, two kids, dog, you know, good school district, that's who stays, you know, the, the, the longest amount of time. And and part of it is have the right house that's big enough for them to move all their crap in and, and stay the rest of their life. We then, when we have a vacancy, we typically do move somebody up nearly to market. If you look at our entire rent roll, we probably are on average about 9% below market value. So that said, they can't shop us and go get a better deal elsewhere. You know, there's a fine line between undercharging and, you know, like losing money and revenue that you could get versus charging top dollar and having higher turnover because they're always looking to to move to, to get a better deal someplace. So I, I'm not telling you we know like I know from like really investors that are very long in the tooth, they tend to like the older you are in the game and the longer you've had the properties, the people like that want less and less management charge less and less below market rent because they have less and less turnover and the less turnover they have, they have the, you know, they have less maintenance, they have less everything. Like one of my mentors said, they still have orange shag carpet in one of their rentals. And whenever the tenant complains about the orange shag carpet, they're like, absolutely no problem. You know, go pick out whatever carpet you want. And based on whatever you want, you know, we'll just make an adjustment in the rent. And they never have replaced the carpet because it's, you know, it's not that bad. We'll just put a throw rug down. <laughs> well, you know, it's amazing. The huge difference, just 50 to hundred bucks a month in the rent can get in the quality of tenant and length of time that they stay there. Even just in the quality of the applicant, just advertising a rate that's 50 bucks less than what most people are asking is huge. And both the quantity of applicants you get and the quality of applicants yeah. Even if you're, if you're, I see people do this where they're pushing the rent, you know, they're trying to get as high as rent as possible. Just one extra month of vacancies wipes out all of that little extra rent that you're trying to get. Absolutely. Better to underprice your rent just a little bit to fill it faster and get more better quality applicants. Well, there's real numbers when you have, you know, we were talking about cost sag and, you know, depreciating some items of the property quicker. And, and I mean, carpet does depreciate quicker. And when you have an apartment and you have higher turnover, that's a real expense. So if you can keep somebody in the house longer and not replace carpet every five years, like you're, you're having a huge, I mean, that's huge numbers to your bottom line. So as I said, you're kind of in this together with your tenants. Like, we can't have rental property without providing benefits to the tenant. And for doing that, here's somebody that their family goes to work for 50% of the month to give us money to pay for our assets. Like it, you know, it can't be one-sided where it's all our benefit. We, you know, we are, we have the benefit of depreciation and amortization and long-term inflationary growth on the value of the properties in exchange for sacrificing the use. We give the use to the tenant and the tenant's job is to be a good steward of the asset, you know, maintain or improve the property to get along with the neighbors and pay the rent on time. And, and really for that, good. we treat them like adults. 
we we don't micromanage them like children. And you know, uh, ideally, we live they leave them alone. They leave us alone. And again, these are these are my philosophies that I've adopted from David Tilney, uh, Jack Miller, from John Schaub. You know, a lot of guys that have you know taught this business for longer than I mean, many multiples of the time I've been in the business. Yeah, so. Nice, man. This is guys. I hope you're picking up the gold nuggets here because um, these are really really good. I want. I got a couple more questions for you, Michael. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about IRAs, self-directed IRAs. Can you explain? what the benefit of that is just briefly i think most people know and explain this to somebody who's maybe has a small ira or just getting started like how do they use that how can they grow it cool remind me to share some resources too in that department as well so when i worked for corporate america i went in i had a salary and one of my benefits to the job was i had a a company 401k plan and that's a long-term retirement plan where i could go in and say Oh, based on my risk tolerance, I can go in and pick some mutual funds and crap like that. And, you know, I had a certain selection of things I could pick to invest in inside the the 401k. After I'm no longer at my corporate job or outside of my corporate job, I could create my own self-directed IRA account. So it doesn't mean I'm going to go to Charles Schwab. I'm going to go to, like initially I started with, there was a local trust custodian in our town that allowed us to invest in real estate via a retirement account. So I had my rollover IRA account from, from corporate America, and I rolled it over to first a traditional IRA at the self-directed custodian. So now instead of having mutual funds in there, I just have basically an account, a money market account that sits there until I direct it to buy, to do something. And with my, with, with my IRA, I, I tend to not want to own real estate. I want to own notes and or options. Uh, like I don't want to be entitled. I don't want to have to manage anything. I just want to be a, more of a passive investor in this. Can you explain why that is? Well, you can't self-deal for one. So I can't provide services or value to an investment that my IRA is participating in. So let's rewind. Okay. After I figured out the game, like I think the first class I went to, like I, I fumbled around and I did some good stuff. I did some bad stuff. I, I, tried to be an equity participation on some flips and some went good, some didn't go good. But I went to a class by Pete Fortunato and Dykes Bodiford and they um, were, where is it? Somewhere over here, a self-directed IRA uh, class. And, you know, basically Dykes does a really good job at scaring the bejesus out of you and, you know, with all the rules. And then Pete Fortunato, who is like, you're silly if you don't go learn from this guy, whoever's listening to this. Pete, Pete has been teaching this for, for 50 years, I think. And amazing guy, but he teaches how to navigate the waters. I mean, especially from a creative finance standpoint. So he can be hard to understand if you don't really, like a lot of it goes over your head initially. And a lot of it went over my head. And I knew that about Pete because I've been to some of his other seminars. And I'm like, all right, I want to go get one thing that me as a marketer, as a guy that's a deal junkie and churning a lot of volume in the market, I want to do one thing that I can take back and replicate over and over and over. So, you know, one of the techniques for self-directed IRAs is creating a wrap environment. And I don't like wraps and that's a whole, we could digress on a whole series of podcasts or that, but I'm like, I know how to find a subject to deal. And basically I know how to put that transaction together. And I also know people as well that I've coached and trained and know, like, and trust in my local environment. So initially my, my IRA found one of those opportunities 
just funny how the IRAs can find things like that. But yeah. uh, my IRA found an opportunity like that. And, and it was basically a, it was in the recession. I bought a $115,000 house subject to a $112,000 first mortgage and the seller needed $2,000 to move. So my IRA went to contract to buy that property subject to and provide $2,000 to the seller. I then called a friend of mine who knows the subject to business and is a property manager, managed his own rentals. And I said, hey, and this is another concept I got from Pete. Like, I can't lend, Joe, you probably wouldn't want to borrow my money at 66%, right? Okay. No. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm positive. Yeah. Okay. But if <laughs> I said, hey, Joe, I have a free house, you can have it. I'm going to provide all the money. All you got to do is just manage it for a few years. And when we sell it, we'll split the profits. Sounds a little nicer, right? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. So I called. Uh, I called my friend and I said, Hey, you want to, you want to manage this house? And, and he's like, hell yeah. So we bought that house. My, I I assigned my contract. He basically ended up borrowing the $2,000 in second. him the 2000. Well, yeah, basically I I lent the proper, I lent it against the property in second position behind the, the loan that we were taking over subject to. So he owned it. He managed it. He got the depreciation during ownership. And a few years later, the house went up over $200,000. He had to put a little bit of fix up into it after he paid himself back for the fix up, paid himself a commission to sell it. He was licensed as well. And basically we split the profits. My IRA, my $2,000 investment turned into about $70,000 investment. And based on the duration that we owned it, that was a compounded 66 and change percent ROI, compounded ROI uh, on on that $2,000 investment. Yeah, not bad. So tax-free. You, you can't self-deal in an right. IRA, which means you can't manage it yourself. You have to hire a property so manager. I, right. I had to hire somebody to do it. And instead of hiring somebody to do it and, and basically losing money every month because the property management fee is on top of the PITI and on ongoing maintenance and other things like that, I would, I would be negative. So in this case, I eliminated the property management fee. I eliminated property management in general, and I basically just became an equity lender on the property. So do you do that on all of your deals inside of your IRA now? Yeah, I've been advised, like John Heyer doesn't like low dollar things like that. He's like, there needs to be some financial substance or rationale for for investing in the deal. And I'll give him credit for that. So now I tend to do more capital invested. So it looks, I mean, it's more of a real investment. I mean, there's an argument that's like, if Freddie and Fannie wouldn't lend over 80% on a loan and I'm lending it darn near 100%, aren't I taking a lot higher risks and shouldn't I have a much higher you know, reward threshold? I think so. But again, just to cut, like there's some fairly significant numbers in my Roth at this point. I don't want to play a game. So I, I like the last one I did, I, I put in $10,000 and most of them are somewhere between 10 and, and you know, maybe 25 or something like that. It's, it's so you'll terrible. lend, you'll, you'll, you'll put 10 to 20 grand into the deal. You'll find a yeah. friend to manage it for you. More or less. Yep. Financial friends locally in my market. Do you ever just lend like hard money lend or bridge loans or lend to other investors on deals? I, mean, I, I consider it, but mostly I like, I don't want to replace being a house flipper in a wholesaler with another job. 
you know, I don't want to be a hard money lender where I'm, I'm, you know, constantly looking to to place it and and get it back and place it and get it back. And 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 I and I like being an equity lender because those deals, I, I make a loan and they just sit there quietly for years. And when they pop, they're, you know, and then you know, then I do have to scramble a little bit and 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 get the money back out there. But do you ever just put your money into a syndication or um, you know a big fund? Uh, I, I have recently. That's that's new to me though. That's somebody that I've known for you know probably 8 years and somebody that has been in that business in the fund business for many many years longer than that. But got to be somebody you trust, right? Absolutely. Okay. So let's we got to wrap this up. Michael, this has been really really good. Cool. Let's talk about advice. Something, you know, what would you tell beginners? As they're getting started, you know, they they're not looking for the get rich quick, mm-hmm. make a quick nickel. They want to make a slow dime. Mm-hmm. And they want to build wealth over the long haul. What would you recommend them to start doing today? Learn management and then go look for asset. Like once you have a good management system, it's easy to dump assets into that system okay. as opposed to, oh, now I got an asset. Let me go figure out how to manage it. You're, 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 you're kind of always behind the eight ball in the, in, the, in the sense that like you're always trying to figure out what you needed to know before you, before you got the asset. So I, I would encourage people to learn management first and adopt those philosophies because it's a whole lot easier to build systems as you go when you start with one and two and three and four. And if you do things right when you're young, A, you can scale quicker you can scale faster and you can scale better and you don't have to go back and, and, and constantly reinvent the wheel. Like when we started, A, we had no system and that evolved to some systems and an Excel spreadsheet. And then that evolved to a real basic property management software. And then that evolved to building them. So every time there was like for us, so we, we, had, to, we had a learning curve and we had to get data transferred. And, and uh, you know, if you could just wind it back up Start like you're going to run it like a business. Start out with a good management class. Start out with a good management platform that will scale as big as you want to. You want to go. Then you're going to save yourself a lot of time, energy, and effort, and banging your head later. Are you going to have higher costs on the front end? Yes. You know, like oh, I don't want to get that because it's such and such dollars per month. But you're way better to pay it now and build your foundation around that because then you can scale so much quicker and then then the cost of that software is 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 it's irrelevant. All right, so you start you take a good property management class, you get the good systems and software and all that. Then what? How do you find well, as, you, as you scale? I mean, you know, if you want to scale, you got to how do you get how do you scale anything? You got to scale relationships, you got to scale some mechanism for creating offers, and that's either I hate to say it, I haven't listened to a lot of your podcast lately, but I assume I know from your history, you you've done a lot of direct marketing, you've done a lot of online marketing, you know, we and I did a ton of that stuff to make my phone ring because I'm very unless I'm talking about real estate, I'm very introverted. Like I don't want to knock on doors. I don't want to cold call people. Mm-hmm. I want people calling me. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's what I did is, to, you know, I, I did a, tons of direct mail, pay-per-click, SEO, blah, 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 all that other crap to get my phone to ring and then, you know, make offers that way. So, well, would you say maybe you need to learn how to do some more of the creative type of deals like subject I, I think it depends on your market. I mean, in my market, absolutely. In Southern California, like in higher dollar markets, you better absolutely learn creative finance. You know, in, in Collective Genius, there's a there's a young a young guy there and he's got over, I haven't really talked to him in a couple of years, but he's got like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of rental properties that he basically buys. They're basically shells. He buys them. He basically guts them, completely redoes them. 
and basically refinances them and does the BRRR thing on a next level. I mean, his market in, in Pennsylvania, he has the ability to, to replicate that. That's not something I have the ability to replicate. So I have higher dollar houses that have higher growth that I need to learn how to creatively finance my way in if I want to keep growing that. Whereas he just had a whole nonstop conveyor. I mean, granted, he still has to work to find them, but he could just find these BRRs and and scale that. So I think what are successful people doing in your market, you know, from an acquisition and a financing and, you know, try to replicate into that in your market. You know, I can tell you what's worked for me, but maybe that's, that's not a good fit for your market. You'd mentioned John Schwab's book. It's a really good book. I'm looking at it right there. um, Building wealth. I'm not looking at it right there. It was (laughs) right there. Anyway, building building wealth one house at a time, right? And that would be a good book for people to start. Absolutely. That's a great beginner book. I've reread that a couple of times, you know, being that I'm, I'm not a beginner anymore, but and there, there's always good nuggets in there. So um, I, I, I think learning from people like John Schaub, learning management from David Tilney, Jack Miller is no longer with us, but he was one of the most creative minds out there. And in cashflowdepot.com is, I think you can now pay one price and you get a lifetime membership and and like courses I used to buy from Jack are now on there for free. So, you know, Jack, Jack was Jack, man. It was like, part of it was a seminar. Part of it was a stand up comedy routine. And, and like the, the, the mistake would be to look at this guy in his, in his 1970s look in JC Penney's suit and think you're never going to learn anything from this guy. And he's absolutely brilliant brilliant guy and and without jack jack miller pete pete fortunato and john schaub and also jimmy napier who's no longer with us those guys really started the whole creative real estate movement and anybody that's teaching this stuff has probably learned it from them or somebody that learned it from them yeah so anyway go to the source (laughs) cashflowdepot.com is the website you talked about yeah yeah and there's a lot of other stuff. There's another guy on there that you should study, uh, Mike Cantu out of Southern California. He's got a super, Mike's my hero. He's always had a real super lean and mean operation. And and here's a guy in you know Southern California who flips 50 houses a year and has, you know, like 40 some rental properties. I think most of them are paid off at this point. He didn't have a care for anything. Yeah. So, I mean, you can do it in any market. And I think if you tried to do the BRRR model in California, you'd have a harder time. I just had one more one more question for you, Michael. Cool. You mentioned the resources about IRAs. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you share some of those resources you were given? You were um, I think one of the, like to grow a small IRA, uh, there's a gentleman, Walter Wolford, and it's just his name, Walter Wolford, W-O-F-F-O-R-D.com. He is a ninja at the small dollar IRA thing. And in fact, I think he has a package where you can buy like seven different seminars for incredibly cheap. You know, he teaches the, the concepts and, and Walter's kind of a hub of a lot of incredibly gifted investor minds that kind of all kind of go to his events. What's, what would his website be again? I think it's walterwolford.com. Knowledgeismoney.net. Would that be it? No, I think it's just his name. Yes, here it is. You're right. Okay. W-A-L-T-E-R, Walter, Wolford, W-O-F-F-O-R-D. Yeah. So he's an old Jack Miller guy. And, you know, I think he made plenty of money. And, and you know, when he had plenty of money, he started growing his, his IRAs and became quite the ninja at that. And, and he teaches a lot with uh, Quincy Long, who owns a, a Quest IRA services. So Quincy is 
you know, kind of the, um, I guess I told you I went to the Dykes and Pete seminar, but Dykes sort of sounds like an attorney, like from the granular level of information. And, and okay. Quincy is kind of the, you know, he's, he knows all the rules uh, for self-directed IRAs. And, and th- those two as a team, you know, Walter's a creative mind. Quincy is the, uh, the, the, the rule book and, and together, you know, they, they teach a lot of really good concepts on, on how to navigate. So if you want to take, what can you put into a Roth IRA? You know, if, if you're not already exceeding the income requirements, you can only put 5,500 bucks in. So it's not a lot of money to work with, but, you know, I gave one example from my portfolio where I used $2,000 to grow it to 70. So that's, that stuff works. I, I recently did. And, and, and I, when I was actively wholesaling, I never did wholesale deals with my IRA. I didn't want something I was doing as a business venture out of my IRA to do it in my IRA. So, but I'm no longer doing that. So I I have stumbled into a wholesale here and there since, and and I can do that in my IRA. So, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm going to put a thousand bucks out and I'm going to get 15, 20, whatever thousand back. I wouldn't do a bunch of those, but you know, I may do one wholesale a year at this point. So, you know, I'm, I'm hard to call me a wholesaler. (laughs) Any other resources, IRA resources you might recommend? I mean, definitely like Dyke's website, assets101.com. He, um, he teaches that class with Pete Fortunato once a year, I think. And that's probably coming up in like February, March. I don't know if that's going to be Zoom or not. I see it right here. Assets101.com. Cool. Yeah. There's another good seminar, uh, Gary Johnston. Gary Johnston Seminars. He teaches a class called Financial Freedom Principles. And that's that's kind of learning how to use a financial calculator, learning how to understand the decisions we make in our lives from how we operate as a as a as, as an employee as a self-employed person as a business or what business entity and how that impacts our tax situation our investment situation like how a different type of plan allows you to put more money in a retirement account i, I mean there's a, a lot of really Anyway, it's a great class. It's probably a class that I will drag my son to kicking and screaming probably as soon as he's 18 years old. You know, it's just one of those things people need to understand. I mean, at any age. And most people that go to to financial freedom principles usually reattend, if if that makes sense. Do you have a favorite IRA company that you like to use? Right now, I'm, I'm using a company called Provident. They're low cost, but I, I have created an LLC that my IRA owns. So uh, Walter would probably tell you to create a trust that your IRA owns and hold it with Quest. I just ended up at Provident, just a, a, a referral. They're very cheap. They're just worthless if you want them to do anything in a reasonable amount of time. And I would say that about probably any of them. Yeah. Whereas once you create an entity like a trust or, or an LLC, and then you fund your IRA dollars into it, now you can have a local bank account that you know, I am the manager of my LLC that I receive zero compensation for, but I can effectively go write a check to get something done in a moment's notice if I need. Mm -hmm. So a provident doesn't, I I made the move and then I realized I couldn't do a trust. So I did the LLC. Quest has a really good deal. Quest has a lot more expertise via Quincy Long, and they do a lot of really good resources. I was just Um, talking to Quest Trust today. 
getting those details ironed out. There's an Advanta is another one. I think my friend uses Advanta. There's uh, Marissa from Advanta. I wish I had her card handy, but she's really, she's a sharp cat. And I've seen her on some, some podcasts, but again, I mean, it's, it's like subject to don't, don't try to go about this half cocked, like learn what the rules are, learn how to do it right. So you don't shoot yourself in the foot and, and have them come back and, you know, blow up your IRA. Yeah. If you're if you haven't set up an account yet, Dorsey Dykes' daughter wrote this book with with Dykes and John Heyer, an attorney, on the solo 401k. Nice. And if you have a solo one 401k, you can basically create part of it as a traditional environment and part of it as a Roth component. So even if you make too much money to start a Roth you can create a solo 401k. And there's also benefits of doing it like a Roth 401k versus a traditional Roth IRA. Because in that, my understanding is every transaction is kind of its own thing. So if you do something bad and they slap your hand on one transaction, it's not going to blow up your whole IRA like it would in a Roth IRA. Interesting. So the book is called Solo 401k. Yeah, the Solo the solo 401k. Nice. I think it's like $20 book. So like that's a wealth of information and, and, and a good foundation for, for that. Nice. Super helpful. Awesome call, Michael, part one and part cool. two. Guys, again, if you haven't heard of part one, go to realestateinvestingmastery.com and check out part one. We gave a ton of links here and all of those links are going to be in the show notes. So go to realestateinvestingmastery.com or a shorter URL is podcast dot com r-e-i-m podcast.com michael thank you so much you know do you have a website or an email or a cell phone number somebody can call you <laughs> swiftresults.com is my Swift website Results. uh that's my house buying website you can hit me up through that or uh i guess i'm on facebook i'm in your your big facebook group i'm in several of the big wholesaling groups out there. Um, you know, if I don't know you honestly on Facebook, I'm not one of these guys with 5,000 friends. I, I actually know most of the people on my friends list. So I probably won't accept a friend invite, but if I can help you, I mean, hit me up off my website. I'm a junkie. If I can help you structure a deal, I'm, I'm, I'm all ears. You know, I'm, I'm used to doing a ton of deals and I'm not that guy anymore, unfortunately, but I still, part of me still wants to be that guy. So if I can help put a, fun uh, creative transaction together. I'd, I'd love to help you out. So swiftresults.com. Yep. Cool. Well, thank you, Michael, so much. Oh. Appreciate it. Anytime, and Joe. It's, it's always fun. Good looking to forward to seeing you again soon sometime. Likewise. All right, guys, we'll see you all later. Take care, everybody.